All right, as we begin our study again tonight, let me just read to you uh, the first four verses of the book of Romans, chapter 2. That's what we covered last week. So we'll do a quick, uh, a quick little review, and then we'll continue to move on. So Paul writes, Therefore you are inexcusable. Again, remember that that's really what the main thing that Paul's been doing is he's been discussing the fact that all men are sinful, that all men uh, rebelled against God. Uh, he's been kind of answering some questions along the way. Uh, in other words, what is man guilty of? Well, he's guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and we went in detail about that. And then uh, he answered the question uh, that we that we would that would come out of that, which is, so what about the individual then who's never heard of Christ? What happens to them? And we covered that in great detail as well. Then Paul goes on and talks about what specific behaviors make up this ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is typical of individuals who are overcome by that? And we saw that the list that he gave to us really is quite common. It's, it's not like there's a, a list of unusual sins, but very common sins that are common to all of us. And then along the way we saw in, in the list that is given that there are three different times that God showed overt mercy uh, by judging man, but judging man really partially. Uh, turning man over to a sin so that man would would realize the unsatisfactory uh, consequences of his behavior and as of, of his thoughts and turn to God. But in each of those cases in general, man didn't turn to God. He continued down the path of his sin. So that's why then Paul then has said before and says again that man is inexcusable. There is nothing that man can truly say that justifies his sinful behavior or justifies his ongoing rebellion against God. So Paul's now going to get into some more specifics about individuals and circumstances so that he can continue to paint the picture that we have been totally ruined by sin, that every aspect of our life has been ruined by sin, and there is no circumstance that an individual can find themselves in that alleviates them naturally of the guilt they have before God. That what is necessary for all of us is the action of God in saving us. So continuing in verse 1, he says, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So as I mentioned last week, he's not necessarily in this passage coming down on those who judge, but on the attitude of the individual that even though they knowingly know right from wrong and they judge those who do wrong, they're not off the hook because they do the same things. So there's no room for self-righteousness here uh, by these individuals. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In contrast, when God judges, it's always according to truth. It's the standard that God is himself. And so that puts us in a very bad situation because no deceit is going to be successful in averting the full judgment of God in our case. And do you think this, O man, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So here, he calls out the individual and says, you don't think for a moment because you're judging others that you think you're going to escape the judgment of God, do you? And he says that because that is what many think. There is a sense of moral superiority that an individual may feel 
it may be uh, in the back of their mind, but it is often what drives our thoughts or our judgment on attitude because we somehow think that by being in a position of one who judges, that somehow our guilt uh, of what we've done is somehow lessened, and, it, and it's not. And we're definitely not going to escape the judgment of God. It's not like they deserve God's judgment and, and I don't, or they really deserve God's judgment and I only deserve it a little bit. He wants to make sure that we understand we're all in the same boat. And then, of course, he, he then moves on to maybe a thought an individual had really never thought about before or had before, and that is, or do you despise the goodness of God? Now, that's a strange combination at first to bring alongside the issue of God judging in, in anger and God being good. But what he moves to is that God is good to us, and we talked about that. In fact, uh, even though we all know because of our sinfulness that God owes us nothing, and we made that clear, clear last week that he owes us nothing, doesn't owe us salvation, he doesn't owe us good health, he doesn't owe us happiness, he doesn't owe us anything. But there is something that we talked about last week, which we call, uh, in, uh, for lack of a better term, is common grace. That is the grace or the goodness of God that is common to everyone or commonly experienced by everyone. The idea being that when it rains, it uh, waters the crops that the believer and the non-believer both plant. It doesn't only rain on the Christian's crop, that kind of thing. That's common grace. The sun shines on all of us. Uh, for those of us who live in America, all of us experience freedom. That's God's common grace. Um, and so that's the idea. So he says there, by, by, by us judging others and, and not repenting, we are revealing that we actually despise the goodness of God. We may not feel like we despise it, but remember that, that, the, that the Bible is a great book of psychology, and it's never wrong. And when it analyzes what's in our heart of hearts, it's always correct. And here, this is not just an empty accusation or an accusation that, well, some of you might be uh, despising the goodness of God. This is a declaration that this is exactly where we're at. This is a declaration of those who are not believers, that they are despising. They despise the goodness of God. And so it's a, uh, a sentence against us, another thing that we're guilty of and done wrong. But then he ends by saying here that, we should know that God's goodness, and we talked about in detail, the goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, that the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. And so that's what we're going to be spending all of our time on tonight, is really developing the idea and defining the word repent and repentance. What does that mean? What is it really? Uh, because it's greatly misunderstood. It is not a simple word to define because it is used not necessarily in a real broad way. It is very focused in Scripture as, as to the way that it's used, but its meaning is very full. It's multi-layered, and we want to make sure that we don't oversimplify it. Many of us, maybe all of us from time to time, have been guilty of that, and so we want to make sure that that, that, that doesn't take place. So let me, let me finish up what we talked about last week in this way. So when we also spoke of God's uh, grace, God's common grace, we spent a little bit of time, I read a couple of articles uh, by Spurgeon and by John Murray about God's um, work of restraint, you know, and, and that's part of God's uh, common grace. God restrains sin. He keeps sin from overwhelming all of us, uh, regardless of where we live. 
Uh, there's also God's restraint on himself. In other words, there's a day coming when his full vengeance on wrath will come. But right now he's holding back because he's merciful. And then also there is this idea that because of the curse of sin in the world we live in, uh, everything is disintegrating. Our bodies are disintegrating. Uh, the, 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 the weather, our environment, the buildings that we build, the social structures or the governmental structures that we build, all of those things are in danger of disintegrating or being, uh, becoming disorganized. That's all because of the curse of sin. So in every realm, God restrains those things from disintegrating so quickly. Uh, he's kind of holding that back. He's not allowing full disintegration to take over. So that's what we ended up with last week. So if you have your Bibles, I would like you to open to the book of Luke, chapter 13. And I'm going to read the first five verses. I'm going to kind of use that as a backdrop as we continue to move on and deal with the issue of repentance. Because Paul is going to talk about repentance. He's already mentioned it, that God's goodness is the lead us to repentance. So we need to know what that is. Uh, those of us who are believers, uh, we need to have our understanding of it deepened and strengthened, uh, not only for ourselves and our own understanding and our relationship with God, but also so that we can explain it uh, better to new believers and explain it to non-believers as well if, if it comes up as we present the gospel of Christ to them. So Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, and he said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's a pretty strong uh, condemnation coming from Christ. So he mentions two incidents that they were all in recent history that, that people were familiar with. One is there, was, uh, there, there were those who uh, Pilate had killed. Uh, they were Galileans. Pilate had killed them. Uh, and there was so much blood set, bloodshed that it kind of mingled with the, uh, with the sacrifices. Then he asked the question, uh, and that is, do you think that those Galileans who died were worse sinners than others? Now, the reason why he asked that is because that is what most of them were thinking, maybe all of them. Uh, most individuals think, well, if they hadn't have deserved that, God would not have allowed that. So now Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't get into a lot of um, detail. He just says, no, they weren't, gives no explanation immediately turns on the people he's talking to. He says, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Same thing's going to happen to you. You're going to die. So you need to repent. And then, of course, the other one is, uh, there was a tower in the town of Siloam. It fell, killed some people. And, of course, the, uh, the thought that many people had is, oh, I wonder what sin they had done. Remember that for the Jews, their view of life, everything was religious. Uh, everything was related to God. Every, every event that took place was related to God because God allowed it, God caused it, God didn't allow it, God prevented it, whatever it was, it was all related to that. And so they would think in those terms. We should think in those terms ourselves. Uh, that's not an incorrect way. They, they haven't gone overboard. 
It was just that they were speculating, and that's where the error comes in. You know, we need to turn to God and, and then examine ourselves in light of these things, and then also realize that there may be some questions that we just will not be given the answer. Uh, it will not be clear to us. But again, the idea was, was that um, uh, many of these individuals were thinking that somehow those individuals who died were guilty of something very serious. And of course, Jesus then asked the question, do you think that they are worse uh, or that maybe um, uh, that they were better than them? And of course, the answer is no. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It doesn't say they're going to perish tomorrow. It doesn't say they're going to perish in the same way. He doesn't do any of that. He just says you're, all, you're going to die. Uh, so let's think about that for a moment. So again, uh, when Jesus asked the question, do you think these men suffered or what they suffered proves that they are worse? The answer to that was basically no. We don't have enough information to figure that out. Uh, when we sometimes hear of an individual dying who's very young, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do kind of wonder in my mind. I wonder why, why that person, why now, why so young? Uh, in, in the cases of some young adults, we do know, I, I know of, I've known of some young adults who died who were just on a path of just outright wickedness. And if they were believers, God took them home. I, I don't know if they were, uh, but if they were, it seems that God took them home. And that the Bible talks about that. That is something that God does do. He does not tell us when he does that. But that's a very real possibility that each of us as believers need to recognize and recognize that God is just continuously kind and merciful to us by allowing us to live because uh, our sin is so grievous to God. So we need to, be, we need to think about these kinds of things and then remember what he said, which is again, that unless we repent, very disturbing words, unless we repent, we will, uh, we will perish. So they weren't worse than anyone else. We're all the same. We're all deserving of death. God does not have to justify why certain people die and why certain people don't. Uh, sometimes as, as we grow older, we become aware of that tension or that dilemma. Uh, I've known of individuals who are older believers who have gotten cancer and have come through it well on the other end. And one of the things that they thought about during their recovery was why did God allow me to get better but not so-and-so or not others. They were, it, it became clear to them that, man, in all of our attempts to deal with the whole cancer problem, that we just have, we do our best, they do their best and hope for the best. But you don't know who, who the chemo and the radiation is going to work for and who it's not going to work for. There's, there's just no way to predict that. Uh, they all hope for a good outcome. But what many individuals, as they reflect on these things, recognize that they could have easily been the one who died and and they didn't and so why 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 did i not die and and even though we ask god that question at times god again doesn't owe us an explanation and i don't think god really ever gives us one and we do need to remember that there's no guarantee that we'll get one in heaven either because sometimes people will say well when we get to heaven it'll all be known well that's not in the bible now, it's true that we, that we might know, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that we will. It does come back to trusting God and trusting that God knows exactly what he's doing. He does know exactly what he's doing, and he is trustworthy, and he doesn't owe us that information either.
So that can be at times difficult, especially if it's someone that we're close to and someone that we love dearly. So anyone who sins against God deserves to die. That's everyone. So the question really is, why isn't why do people die? The question is, why do they live? Why do I live? Why does my neighbor live? Those who live to be in their 70s or their 80s or their 90s, why are they allowed to live so long? It's because God is merciful. Because everybody has sinned against God and everybody deserves to die. We don't deserve life. Now I want to read you some things from a uh, writing which is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now as, as Baptist, you may not be familiar with that. It, it's uh, well known among our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. There is a Baptist catechism, not as well known, uh, but it deals with some of these questions. Now the language is kind of old, but I think that uh, you'll see that they were pretty thorough in dealing with some of these things. And so they asked the question, <clears throat> what is repentance unto life? Now, even that phrasing right there is different from the way that we talk. So the question that's being asked is, what is repentance? What, what is it that leads to eternal life or that leads to spiritual life? What is that repentance? What does it look like? How do I, look like? How do I understand it? So here's the answer. So repentance that leads to eternal life or leads to spiritual life is a saving grace. That means it's the goodness of God that's in salvation, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. So the idea is that we turn away from our sin, we turn to God, and it is our desire to live in obedience to God. That, that's repentance. That's what it's talking about. It continues, this is saving grace. That is, it comes from God, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, again with a full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Then the catechism also says, repentance unto life does chiefly consist of two things, which I've already mentioned. One, turning from sin. That's the forsaking of sin. So uh, the uh, turning from sin is viewed as being you're, you're forsaking it. You're leaving it behind you. Uh, a sinful way of life is what you're turning away from and the specific sins that the person, that the person was involved in. And then it is also a turning to God. Uh, so so you, it's, it's, it's the idea that you're on a road going in one direction and you stop and you turn completely around and you go the opposite direction and that is the direction of God. So the next question in the catechism is, so then what is turning from sin? You know, that's, that's a part of true repentance. What is that? Well, the answer when it talks about turning from sin uh, is consists of two things. Number one, uh, it reads, in turning from all gross sins in regard of our course and conversation. So the gross sins there are, would be that you're turning from all of your obvious sins. All of those things that are clearly sinful. Um, you know, uh, committing adultery, uh, dealing with life through the use of drugs and alcohol, uh, cheating of any kind, whether it's cheating on your wife or husband or cheating on your taxes or you know, any, anything that you deal with. Any, any, anything that you're doing that is deceitful, that kind of thing. And then number two, it's a turning from all other sins in regard of our heart and our affections. So let's talk about the inward, the, the internal things, not eternal, but internal, uh, your desires, maybe your desire for 
money, um, meaning like a love of, of money, a love of what money can buy, uh, you know, a great affection for that. That So we, true repentance is turning away from the obvious sins, but it's also an internal work of God in turning you away from those things that you think about. The next question is, uh, do such or do those who those who truly repent of sin do they never return again to the practice of the same sins which they repented so this is the answer those who have truly repented of sin never return to the practice of it so as to live in a course of sin as they did before so in their discussion of this they're not saying that you and I will never sin again and they're not even saying that we won't commit the same sins again what they are saying is that we will not return to a sinful lifestyle. We will not be involved in the practice of sins or the sins that we're doing now. Uh, we're not going to continue in them uninterrupted. Uh, we're not going to seek to justify those things. We're going to be turning away from those. That's what true repentance brings about. In fact, it goes on and says, and where any after repentance do return to a course of sin, meaning they practice it, uh, habitually, it is an evident sign that their repentance was not of the right kind. So that would be a false repentance, basically, or a shallow repentance or a showy repentance. So some have truly repented of their sins, although they may be overtaken and surprised by temptations so as to fall into the commission of the same sins which they have repented of, yet they do not lie in them, but they get up again. With bitter grief, bewail them and return again to the Lord. So it's what I said earlier, is that uh, and that's what they mean by the word surprise there. It's, it's not like they're stunned that, that they're tempted again. But the idea is, is that you maybe spontaneously committed a sinful act. It wasn't premeditated. It was, boom, you were tempted. You, you gave in. And, and so you're stunned by it. So let's say that your issue is, is you deal with um, a lot of situations out of anger, which is selfish and wrong. And so you've turned from your sin. You turn to God. Driving down the road, somebody pulls out, and just instantly you become angry, and you you drive up right on the person's rear bumper, honk your horn, and then you stay on them for a while because of the, of that anger you're seething, and then later on you realize what you did that it was that you're a Christian, that you sinned against God, uh, it was wrong for it to have done that, you're so disappointed in yourself, and you repent to the Lord, you confess your sin, and again seek his help to to control that aspect of your emotions and so that as i mentioned that can happen but you don't just return to a life again where you deal with all of life in your anger and manipulate people out of your anger uh that christians don't do that uh, and that's what it's talking about here in this so you can see that repent then uh it's actually a very powerful word a powerful word uh there's a great deal of of depth to it and expectation that when an individual repents much is required to show if that repentance then is genuine so so repentance is never a shallow thing it's not just a word that we follow or a formula that we follow uh, it's a, a uh, it's a word that describes a life-changing event uh, it's a life-changing behavior a life-changing choice that we make through the power of Christ, because we're unable to do that on our own. We, we need the power of God to repent even, um, because we're too weak to do that. So again, verse 5 of Luke 13, 
Again, remember what Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the actual word itself, repent, uh, in the Greek language is mataneo, or mataneo. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the Greek word itself. Uh, when it's used in the New Testament, again, it always embodies more than just the literal meaning of its, of its component terms. In other words, it always speaks of a change of purpose, and, it spe- and specifically always speaks of a turning from sin. So I want, read, I want to read to you a definition from a theological dictionary. This is Colin Brown. Uh, I believe it's a three-volume set. In volume one, on page 358, uh, they're dealing with the uh, Greek word, mataneo, for repent. And it says this. It says, their predominantly intellectual understanding of mataneo as a change of mind plays very little part in the New Testament. And let me pause there, because I didn't say this earlier. So in some brief Greek dictionaries, if you look up the Greek word for repent, which is mataneo, it'll tell you that it means to change the mind. Then it moves on. Um, That's been misconstrued by a lot of people. Because again, we know in English, in the English language, that a word doesn't only have its, what we call its dictionary meaning, but the way that it's used in the culture. It takes on so much more. Uh, And so a, a word... Um, can mean much more than just the few sentences or sentence that is used in a dictionary. And so the word repent uh, in the Bible dictionary really is much more than just change your mind. It is changing your mind about your sin, and it's changing your mind about God. So what does that mean to change your mind? What does that look like? And that's what we're getting into here. So he goes on in this theological dictionary in defining or in giving us a, a real working definition of the Greek word mataneo. It says, rather the decision by the whole man to turn around is stressed. It is clear that we are concerned neither with a purely outward turning nor with a merely intellectual change of ideas. In the sense that Jesus used it, repentance incorporated or or repudiation of the old life and a turning to God for salvation. So in another uh, Theological Dictionary. This one's 10 volumes. It's Kittles. Um, a lot of pastors used to, used to have that. It takes up a lot of room on your bookshelf. Uh, now, for most of us, it's on our computer or in our Bible software. But it's a very um, well done, very helpful Theological Dictionary. And those 10 volumes uh, on Kittles is just New Testament words. But this is what it says about Montaneo or Repent. The term demands radical conversion. It demands a transformation of nature, a definitive turning from evil, a resolute turning to God in total obedience. This conversion is once for all. There can be no going back, only advance and responsible movement along the way now taken. It affects the whole man. So you can see that there's a very robust uh, meaning to that word that more and more, as we look at all these different resources, are really proving to us this is not just my idea or the idea of a few pastors or a few academics, but that this is kind of, there's a growing consensus in the various uh, reference works that we use, in the commentaries that we use, where uh, that robust definition is understood and used uh, in explaining what it means to repent and, and to turn to Christ. So again, first and basically, the center of personal life 
then logically what flows out of it is that individual's conduct at all times, in all situations, his thoughts, his words, and his acts. So that's why we talk about as believers uh, repenting and of our sin. We know that we repented of our sin when we came to Christ at salvation. And, and when we did that, we then entered a life where we would continue to repent. Now, we're not continuing to repent so that we can be saved again. And we're not continuing to repent so we can remain saved. Because that's not in question. The idea is, is that now that, we are, that our hearts have been changed, we have a much different attitude towards sin. Uh, a much different thought process and feeling about sin. So that we are, in an ongoing way, concerned about sin in our life. Because as we grow as Christians, we become more aware of more sins in us. In other words, there is no person who's repented of their sin when they came to Christ and, and they've been able to successfully turn away from all their sin and live in perfection. That just doesn't happen. Uh, we're, we're stuck in a, in a body of flesh. And as we grow as Christians, we become aware of what we, what we call sometimes hidden sins, uh, simply meaning that we were unaware of them. We may have been so caught up in the obvious sins, uh, you know, the, the, the gambling and the, and the adultery and, you know, the chasing of, of drugs and alcohol and, you know, cheating at work and getting in the fights and all those things, that we were unaware of so many other things that we were doing wrong. But as those big things are very quickly swept away, and they often are very quickly swept away, we then become aware of uh, deceitful thoughts. We become aware of grudges that we hold against people that we've never revealed to anyone and we become aware that that's sin because of the commands of christ to love others and to pray for them we become aware of our own laziness we become aware of how deep our rebellion goes because we we don't want to read the bible we don't want to gather with believers and you know we want to feel sorry for ourselves and just all kinds of things that go on so that, that's why, again, understanding this word is so important because it has a major effect on every aspect of our life as Christians and it has a continuing or a perpetual effect in our lives as Christians. So again, the whole proclamation of Jesus, when, when Jesus came to give us the good news, is a proclamation of unconditional turning to God, meaning there's nothing I hold on to. It's not, well, God, I'm going to turn to God, but I'm going to hold on to this. It is unconditional. I turn away from everything in my life and I turn to God and whatever in my life he wants me to keep, I get to keep. That's kind of the idea of what's going on here. So again, the whole proclamation of Jesus is a proclamation of unconditional turning to God, of unconditional turning from all that is against God, not merely that which is downright evil, but that which is in a given case makes total turning to God impossible. Uh, so again, uh, the idea there is that the individual uh, is, is willing to allow the Word of God to shape their thoughts. We allow the Word of God to inform us as to what is right and wrong. Before, I thought I knew what was right and wrong, and I determined what was right and wrong based on how I felt, whether it's affecting me personally or others. Now, as a believer, whatever I think right or wrong is, I'm always going to compare it to the standard of Scripture. And scripture would tell me that. So let's use it as an example. So let's say that um, an individual, before they became a believer, thought that it was a correct position to hold, that abortion was 
simply an issue that was to be determined by the mother. And they felt deeply that no one else had a right to place any kind of moral demands on a woman who is considering or who is getting an abortion. Then the individual becomes a believer. Well, a Christian wants and allows the Bible to form their thoughts. So what that person then will learn, and now they may not learn this like the next day, but what they will learn in time as they read the Bible and as they're taught, is that the Bible makes it very clear that first of all, that no matter how a woman gets pregnant, what is in her is a human being. That's, that's a major thing. It is, it is a person. As it goes through various stages of development, it's always a person. And, and the Bible is very clear on that. So now there's a dilemma. Because now the person should realize that abortion is the taking of a life of a human being. The fact they're not breathing air is of no consequence in this argument. And so that person may be very troubled by that. And they start thinking, well, but what about the rights of the mother? Well, what we learn from the Bible is that the rights we think we have and the rights we actually have may be two different things. So does a mother have the right to determine if her child lives or dies? Well, the answer is no. We know that when the baby's born, she doesn't have that right. So what is it in the Bible that would inform us that she has that right before the baby is born? Well, there's nothing there. So that right was never a right. She never had the ability or the moral standing to make that, that determination. Now, of course, that becomes very uncomfortable at times because we know that some women become pregnant through rape. And we've heard stories of individuals who've kept the baby and are glad they did. Some have said, well, it's unfair to ask the woman to uh, carry the baby to full term because she will always be reminded of the rape. You know, the women who are interviewed who've carried a baby that was conceived and raped to full term, I can't, I've not been able to find it. I'm not saying it's not out there, but I've read eight or nine testimonies of, of women. They say that never happened. They never think of the rape when they look at their child. So that's out of the mouth of the women who themselves were raped and became pregnant. We also know that there are some who become pregnant from incest. So as a result of those two tragic things, some have tried to use that, saying, well, but those things are so traumatic, and they are, and so bad and so evil, that we must give the woman the right to terminate the, 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 the pregnancy. Well... It is a very unfortunate and a very grievously sad situation when that happens. But that doesn't give us the right to take a human life. So you see what happens with this Christian, even though it may not be immediate, because the attitude is submission to God and that God knows what is right and that God determines what is right and what is wrong, that Christian will then begin to turn and change their mind as to what they thought before about abortion, and they will become what we would call pro-life. I'm not dealing with the politics of it, though. It's politics, but uh, when it comes to that position, and they would then be against abortion. Uh, there's, there's no way to get around that. 
And so that's what it's talking about here. We don't have the right to hold on to anything else. Everything must be evaluated in light of the Word of God. And as I said before, it doesn't mean the person will change immediately. They may have a lot of questions, but God's not afraid of those questions. And we can find the answers. Also, we know that when it comes to repent, not only is there, is there this turning away from sin, but there's a redirection of, of the life and a redirection of the will, what, what we desire, what we want to do. So Thayer's Greek, dex, uh, I'm sorry, Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the Greek word for repent, montaneo, and it reads this way. The change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and hearty amendment, the tokens and effects of which are good deeds. So the idea is you now begin to do good. That, that's what he's getting to. You turn away from your sin, you take it a whole new direction, and you begin to do good for good's sake, for the sake of God and for the sake of others. So it's a redirection of the will that results in changed behavior. That's what it's getting at. So you see, repentance is not just an internal thing. It's not just simply just a change of mind. Because of what you're changing your mind about, there's going to be evidence that that has genuinely happened. And what it does lead to, what it naturally leads to, what it naturally lends itself to, is a change in behavior. The person is going to treat other people differently. They're going to react differently in various situations. Again, we're not going to react 100% correct in every situation. We're going to blow it. We're going to sin. But the individual is not going to live the way they did before. And they're going to want their behavior to change. They're going to want the way they deal with people to be very different. And so that's what this is talking about. So again, it's not just sorrow for our sin. Uh, and genuine repentance always has sorrow. I do think it's important that genuine sorrow, I don't think, and again, this is not my opinion, I don't think that genuine sorrow always involves an emotional uh, manifestation. We're all very different in our personalities. And I believe a person can be very, very sorrowful and not have any tears. So what I'm talking about is, is the crying and or tears. Uh, so we have to be careful with that, that we don't assume that because a person has tears that they genuinely repent because maybe they haven't. And just because someone doesn't have tears doesn't mean that they're not sorrowful. So just throwing that out there for us to think about. Uh, even in evaluating ourselves, because sometimes a person may really beat themselves up thinking that they not they didn't really have any great sorrow over their sin because they're not shedding any tears. But you can really begin to loathe yourself because of your sin and not cry. Now, I think back uh, on my life on some things that I've done, things that I've said or ways that I've treated people that I just, I mean, I, I hate it. I, there's no words I can use to describe how heavy-hearted I am that um, I did those things or said those things to people. Uh, loathe is the best word I can think of. Um, I loathe myself for those things, but I'm not crying. But that doesn't mean that I don't hate myself for what I've done or I hate what I've done. It, it's, it's very strong. Much stronger now than it used to be. It bothers me deeply. Uh, and, I, and I really wish I could go back and undo those things. And there are things I, I can't. I can't undo them. I, I can't address them. Sometimes the people involved, they're, they're dead and gone. Uh, sometimes there's people I don't even know who they were, um, and so nothing can be done. Uh, but I genuinely hate that. And so we need to make sure that we have that in our life. So again, it's, it's a redirection of the human will. It's a choice to forsake unrighteousness and to pursue holiness is really what we're talking about, is to pursue holiness. And again, the redirection of the will, that's the work of God. 
that is not something that we generate on our own. You know, when we repent, it's the work of God. God is working in us. He's changing our hearts. Uh, yes, we are, in a sense, going along with it. Um, that's the mystery of God's sovereign work in our life is where is the line? You know, when I say that I've changed my mind or when I say that I am pursuing holiness, I'm not discounting it is the work of God in my life, but it's still correct for me to say I'm pursuing holiness. Uh, it's just incorrect to say that I'm pursuing holiness in and of myself because I'm not. Um, I'm not motivated by myself. It, it, God has changed my heart and then that's the natural outcome of that. So how do we delineate and the two, I, we don't. You know, it's, it's, again, very much this kind of a thing. But it's definitely the work of God. Uh, we, we can take no credit for any of these things, any of the things that we're talking about. So, some now, when we talk about repent in this way, when I talk about this evidence, this change in behavior, change in the will, some people are saying, oh, wait a minute now, Bob. You're kind of talking about a, a pre-salvation work that... You know, you're saying you got to clean your life up and repent so you can get saved. I'm not saying that. Not at all. There is nothing we can do to prepare ourselves to get saved. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves more savable. There is no work we can do that puts us in the good graces of God. All I'm saying is, is that genuine, genuine repentance, which is the work of God in our life, can be visibly seen in those ways. And if those things aren't there to some degree, then we have the right to question if the repentance was genuine, beginning with ourselves and then with others. And we should want to do that because we don't, for example, if it's your child, you don't want to be satisfied with, with your child's repentance if it's not genuine. They may have been going through the motions of repentance to please you or because their buddy did it. What we, what we should want is that that repentance is, is genuine and that it's always going to be genuine. So it's a very uh, sobering and deep thing when it comes to uh, what we're dealing with here. So it's not that. Um, it's not an invitation for us to turn our back on evil so that Christ will accept us. It is because Christ has accepted us, I'm turning my back on evil. Uh, and so that's, that's the saving grace of God. I want to read you a quote from a book. There's a very good book that J.I. Packer wrote and it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, a little book, probably 180 pages, maybe less. Uh, if you've not read it, I recommend it highly. It's very good, uh, very well done. You want to take your time reading it, very thought-provoking. He says this. He says, The repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. Now, there he's about Christ's claim on our life, that we don't set any limit on that. He has absolute authority over every aspect of my life. But one of my favorite authors of all time, uh, my favorite preacher, my favorite author, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was a preacher in, in England and uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, he says this. He, it, he has a, a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And he writes this. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hellbound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, and that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, 
the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. That's a powerful uh, statement made by Martin Lloyd-Jones and one that uh, should really cause us to, to think. One more thing. Again, Jesus said there in Luke, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The word perish that's used here it can mean physical destruction. It can mean eternal destruction. But here, when Jesus uses it, in the Greek language, it is what's called the future middle voice. And what that means is that it is something that will take place in the future. But not only that, but it also emphasizes that this action is something you do to yourself. That if you don't repent, you then destroy yourself. And the reason why that's true is because, remember, we've already been condemned. So make sure that, I, uh, that we understand that because a lot of times as Christians we still don't have that part right when it comes to this idea of condemnation and what happens when we die and this standing before God and God's judgment on us and what is entailed in that judgment. So this is just a simple way for us to remember this and that, and that is uh, when an individual dies and they stand before God in judgment or for judgment, that judgment is never to determine if they are guilty or innocent. And that judgment is never done to determine if they're going to go to heaven or not. That is not what that judgment is talking about. Remember that for the non-believer, which all of us were at one time, the Bible makes it clear that we are already condemned. Already condemned. So when the unbeliever dies, when he stands before God, it, he is standing there for sentencing. In other words, his sins are judged and the proper punishment is being determined or judged at that time. And I do believe there's various degrees of punishment. Um, the Bible is not, uh, doesn't give details about that, but it does, I think, make it pretty clear that there are, that there are those who will suffer much more than others. I don't know how that whole thing plays out because it's pretty bad to begin with, but I believe that's what the scripture teaches. For the for the non for the believer when we die, again, we're not standing before God to see if 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 we get to go to heaven or not. That's already been determined. In fact, the reason why we're going to be going to heaven is because we're now no longer condemned because Christ was condemned in our place. Remember, our sins were placed on him, and he then was punished. He suffered God's wrath for us. So we then go to heaven. So no. So if you're ever talking to an unbeliever and they say, well, I hope my good works outweigh my bad. What, one of the ways you can come back to that is, why are you hoping that? Because usually, they may be accustomed to other people saying, well, I'm not sure you're going to have that many good works. Or, you know, there's a lot of ways to come at that. But if you, but if you ask a different question, why are you hoping that your good works are going to outweigh your bad. Perhaps they'll answer it. And perhaps they'll say, well, well, isn't it obvious? It's, it's because I'm hoping that if, my, if I have more good works, then I'll get in. And that's then when you can tell them, um, that's never true for anybody. Or you can tell them, uh, I think you misunderstand what judgment is. Because that's immediately what most non-believers think. 
that God's going to weigh out our good and bad and determine if we get in or not. What they need to understand is no one's going in. That's already been determined the moment that we are on the earth. We, we sin. We're condemned. It's already too late. You commit your first sin, it's over. Uh, as far as that, you know, we, we know we're born with, with, uh, with, a, with a sinful nature and, and we sin because we're already sinners. But it's our actual sins that we're going to be punished for. And, that, and by the time we even learn that we're going to be held accountable for our sins, it's already too late because of all the sins we've committed. So you might want to ask that question, so I think it would be a good thing. So again, uh, the responsibility as to what will happen is placed squarely on an individual's shoulders. So that's why we say that uh, when an individual dies and goes to hell, they, in one sense, we can say they've sent themselves to hell um, because the way of salvation is offered to everyone. And we've already seen that all men die without excuse. And all men have an opportunity to respond to the spiritual light that God has given them. And what does man do is he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. John 3.18 tells us this. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So next week when we get together, let me just read this to you. We're going to go through Romans verses 5-8. through eight. It says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So we're going to continue Paul's treatise here. We'll continue our talk on repentance. There's a few more things that we'll have to go through. And then we will get into, we'll also do this uh, coinciding with God's judgment. Uh, there are six things out of this that I want to make sure that we have as far as what an unrepentant sinner refuses to do, what an unrepentant sinner will not do, and what an unrepentant sinner cannot do. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to make sure that we uh, do those things. So let's pray, and uh, I'll see you next week. Father, as always, we are overwhelmed with gratitude because of your mercy and grace, especially for those of us who are believers. We are undeserving of salvation, and you have saved us from our sin, and you have preserved for us, reserved for us a place in heaven. And all this is made possible because of Christ and his willingness to, to take our place and be punished for our sin. We can never thank you enough, Father, but we ask also that you help us to never become ungrateful. We do pray, Father, for those who may not know Christ that are watching this, we pray that your spirit would convict them of their sin and their need of Christ. And then, again, for those of us who are believers, we pray that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with those who are lost. Again, Father, we thank you for your patience with us. And we ask that you help us, Father, to reflect in our lives, to make sure that genuine repentance has taken place, and that we continue to live a life of repentance, knowing, Lord, that that will actually bring to us great, deep, and lasting joy. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.